you have a copy of Scripture, if you would, turn to Psalm 145. Um, if you do not have a copy of Scripture, um, it's printed in the worship guide for you. Um, and also there are, are Bibles in the welcome area there. If you do not have one, we would, we would love to gift that to you today. Um, so if you don't have one, um, grab one before you leave. Um, we have been, for those of you who... Um, maybe it's your first time here today. We've been working through the Psalms over the past few weeks. Um, and we have, over the last few Sundays rather, and so we have been looking at this um, themes throughout Psalms. And one of the, the main themes that flow throughout the Psalms, as Pastor Jimmy has pointed out, is this theme of, of worship. The theme of magnifying who God is and proclaiming who God is. And at times, Proclaiming to ourselves to remember the greatness of who God is. We see it all throughout the Psalms, this, this theme of worship. We saw it in Psalm 1 with the idea of worshiping through the meditating and dwelling in the truths of God's word and his law and his instruction. Saw it in Psalm 6 with the worship of God through confession of sin. See it in Psalm 46 with... The confession of God is our refuge and strength and the proclaiming that he is the one in whom we will take trust because he will not be moved. Psalm 23, the worship of God though he is because he is our shepherd who gives us what we need. And last week we looked at Psalm 100 with this call to, to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, to magnify him. But even as we look at the other Psalms, I was even thinking back through that this week of those of you who know me, at times I can be prone to um, the more melancholy side of life. And so there are certain Psalms that I'm prone to have to remind myself of. Psalm 13, Psalm 42. And even as you look at those, Psalm 13, which may be familiar to some and not to others, it begins with, how long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? And we can look at this psalm and say, well, how is that worshipful? Because when he gets to the end, he says that he will worship his God for he trusts in him. Or you get to Psalm 42. Why are you downcast, O my soul? For I will trust in Yahweh. Right? And so we see all throughout the psalms, even in the ones where the psalmist is persecuted, where the psalmist is downtrodden, all of it is pointed to lift the, the psalmist's eyes and the reader's eyes to lift their eyes to the Lord and worship him, to know who he is, to remember who he is, to trust in who he is, and then to proclaim who he is. And so today in Psalm 145, we, we see that theme continued in as here the, 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 the psalmist being David is pointing us to personally worship God, to generationally worship God, and then he spends the rest of the psalm telling us why. The truths about God that we should be proclaiming. So let's look together at Psalm 145. Follow along as I read. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever Endeavor. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. 
on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on the wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Yahweh is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yahweh is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Yahweh. And all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds. And the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your domain endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Yahweh upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Yahweh is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Yahweh is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Yahweh preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of Yahweh and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we do thank you for your word, for its truthfulness, for its power. Um, so God, we pray that you would strengthen us in the truth of your word, the resolve to worship because of who you are and of your worthiness of it. It's in Christ we pray these things. Amen. So again, we see this is a, a song of praise, a psalm of, of David. And David is writing this psalm. Again, going to kind of break this down into three sections. He's, he's writing it to, to proclaim his personal commitment to worship. He's writing it to proclaim the generational nature of worship. And he's writing it to proclaim why God should be worshipped. So let's look together at David's personal commitment to worship. Look at verses 1 and 2. I will extol you or I will exalt. I will lift high you, my God and my King. And bless your name forever and ever. David begins this psalm with the, with the proclamation that he will lift high or exalt God and that he will bless his name David begins with the the truth and the reality that that there's a personal obligation and decision and responsibility to lift high and bless the reality and the truth of who Yahweh our God is but notice what David the language David uses about God here I will extol you I will exalt you my God and my king. David is including both of these in his worship and proclamation of God. Both of these realities that he is his God and, is his, and he is his king. 
Because honestly, I don't think the scriptures teach you can rightly worship and exalt who God is unless you exalt and proclaim the reality of both. If God is to be our God, he is to be our king. If we were to rightly worship and proclaim him, if we were to rightly exalt him, if we're to rightly give him the praise that is due him and proclaim who he rightly is, we cannot claim him to be God unless we also claim him to be king. Psalm 47, 6 and 7, we see this same truth. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. So again, David is, and again, let's remember who David is. David is king. David is the one who ruled over Israel. And yet David speaks of God as his God and his king. David knew his rule was limited and his rule was ultimately under the kingship of God. We see, and there's, I don't see it as much. I think that's just because I'm self-employed and I work by myself. So I don't hear a lot of things from a lot of people. But I know for the longest time there was this kick. And I, I still see it because I used to work with college students. And I, I see the, the college ministries and I hear the conversations with college students. And I have conversations with grown adults who talk about things of God. Because I'm in homeowners' houses and we have conversations. This reality, especially when it comes to how we speak of Jesus. There was this whole de debate years ago of lordship salvation. Can Jesus be your savior and does he have to be your lord? The Bible speaks very clearly and David again is proclaiming this worship of him. If Jesus is to be your savior, he is to be your king. If God is to be the God whom we call father, he is to be our king. We cannot have one without the other. And if we are to rightly worship God and exalt him, we must... Proclaim as David proclaims. You are my God and you are my king. Often in our world and even when, again, you, you have conversations. I remember a conversation I had recently with a friend who was talking about his, his son. And he was talking to him about the things of God. And it was, why do you not follow him? And his response was, because I don't want him to tell me what to do. And there's a lot of honesty if we're honest within ourselves. There's, there's, there's a need to be honest and say, do I like the idea of having a God who can give me what I need and who can, who can come in and save the day when I need him and, and who will, will save me from hell when I need to get there. But as far as my life here and decisions I make and things that I do and what I want and what I'm going to, to go after, I get to decide all of those things. I just need him to come in and make sure I have what I need to do them. If that is your view of God, if that is your view of Christ, understand and hear me clearly and understand and hear David clearly. Dave, God has to be your God and your king if he is going to be either. We see David proclaiming this truth that he will exalt and worship and praise and lift high God, his king. And then he goes on to say he will bless his name forever and ever. He will seek to make happy the name of God. Then he goes on in verse two, every day I will bless you and praise your name. So he goes from praising God and blessing his name to blessing him and praising his name. It's encapsulating this reality of his name and who he is and, and worshiping him. But notice how David says he's going to do this. I will exalt you, my God and king, 
and I will bless your name. How often? How long? Forever and ever. And then he goes into verse two. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. The true right worship of God is not a circumstantial worship. The true right worship of God is not relegated to one day a week when we gather and we sing and we hear the word of God. The right worship and praise of God is to be a daily endeavor. If you look over one, the next psalm over, look at Psalm 146. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh, O my soul. I will praise Yahweh as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have being. David's commitment to worship, his proclamation of worship was not limited to his circumstances. But he was committed and he was resolved to every day he would bless and praise his God and his king. Again, we see it in Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. This isn't just some wording of the psalmist. It is to be proclaimed throughout the generations. Every day, we who are his people should be resolved that today we will bless his name. Today, we will exalt him. Today, as long as we live, we will give praise to him because of who he is. I was convicted of that even last night. I was laying in bed thinking through the sermon and thinking through the day and thinking through the past week. And even in the reality of thinking that I have to, I'm, I'm going to stand up here and, and say what I just said and, and read what I just read from the psalm that we're to proclaim him every day and looking back at this last week of how even this past week I allowed the consuming things of work and projects and task at hand to become the all-consuming nature of my mind. And my day was set and focused solely on this project and this task and this is what I have to do and it consumed everything. And thankfully I had um, a loving wife and some good brothers who were alongside me and worked to, to in, seeing me in the midst of those things to point my eyes and remind me of who God was and lift my eyes to him. But we all find ourselves in those situations where we, we come in and everything's nice and everything's good and we, we, we tend to, to, to go in there and worship but things begin to get stressful and things begin to get hard or maybe sometimes when things begin to get too comfortable we just kind of float through life. But yet we, we should set our minds to and be resolved in that daily we would worship him. For as Calvin said, for since God is constant in extending mercies, it would be highly improper in us to faint in his praises. We who are his people, as we just sang, his mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Every morning we have reason to praise him. Every day we have reason to proclaim him. Every day we have reason to exalt him. And we can look at this and say, well, man, that's every day. Like, how are we going to praise God every day? Like, wouldn't that get kind of redundant? Because, again, you'll hear people, especially small children, they'll ask questions about heaven or stuff. It's every day just we're going to get up and do a church service, and they think we're just going to sing like all 18 stanzas of Just As I Am for all eternity or something. So what would lead us to be able to, every day, be able to, with a renewed vigor to say, I will praise him. 
Well, look at verse three. We can praise him every day because every day we have reason to and we'll never exhaust it because his greatness is unreachable. Look at what it says. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. We're to praise him because he's great and he's greatly to be praised. And we can praise him every day as long as we live. And if you read the end of the book, we don't stop at death. We praise him for all of eternity. How can we do that? How can we sing and praise and worship this God every day for all eternity, even without time? Because his greatness is unsearchable. Literally, the word can be translated, in his greatness, there is no search. We can plumb the depths of what we can grasp and fathom. We can study all of the scriptures and we can read all of the theology books and we can listen to all of the sermons on the theology proper of who God is. And we will have yet but hit the fringes of the reality of who he is. His greatness is unsearchable. If you go to Job chapter 5, you don't have to flip there, but just follow, listen along. As for me, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the schemes of the wily are brought quick to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. Job, in the midst of his suffering and persecution, points to, or not persecution, but in the midst of his suffering and loss, points to the reality of the greatness of God and his marvelous things that are without number. I, I don't have to say I think, I say I know because I see it in my own life. One of the reasons we can look at this and say, man, he, he's committed to praise every day and yet I struggle. I think if I'm honest, the reason I struggle to wake up every day and praise him is because I struggle to grasp and rest in and remind myself of just who this God is that we serve. We serve a God whose greatness is without measure. We serve a God that though we sit at his throne and worship for all of eternity, we will never know fully depths of who he is and this God through Christ has allowed us to say you are my God and my king we should praise him we should worship him and we should resolve to do so daily but David not only points to a personal worship and this idea that personally he is resolved and, and should be resolved to worship him daily in reminding himself of the greatness of God, he also points to the generational nature of worship. Look at what it says in verse four. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. David goes from the personal to again to the, to the generational, to the familial in a sense, to the corporate and one generation, he says, shall commend your works to another. Whereas he's personally going to praise, now he's saying, now this generation will praise and commend you, will proclaim the goodness of you to the next generation. If you would, go to Deuteronomy chapter six. Flip there with me. Pastor Jimmy pointed there, I think it was last week. 
But I want us to look there as we see this has been, um, even if you go Genesis 3, we see Adam given that task with Eve and with all of his descendants who would come after him that he's to, to make worshipers. But in Deuteronomy chapter 6, again known as the Shema, because verse 4 starts with Shema Yisrael. Look at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Listen. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Here, and part of the, the, the words that the, the, the Israelites likely would have recited regularly is the command that they're to do what? Not just personally bind them around their, their frontlets, but they're to teach them to their children. They're to proclaim them as they're walking and when they're sitting down, when they lay down and when they rise. If, if you get it, it's all the time. But we see this all throughout the Old Testament with the people of God. Right? When they're freed from, from Egypt, what, what memorial supper was given to them? Passover, right? When God gives them the Passover, what's one of the things he tells them? So when your children ask, why are we doing this? You can tell them because of what the Lord did for us in Egypt. Or when they crossed the River Jordan to go into the Promised Land, what did they do? They set up a, a monument of stones. Why? God says, so that when your children ask, why are these stones here? You can tell them what the Lord has done for you. It is ingrained in the very nature of the people of God that they are to teach the upcoming generation of who God is. And even look ahead at how this flow works. In verse 4, this generation shall commend your works to another and declare your mighty acts. And then look at verse 5. And on the glory of your glorious splendor of your majesty and your wondrous works, I will meditate. So that generation's commending the mighty acts of God. In verse 7, I will praise and, and worship the mighty acts of God. Look at verse um, 6. They shall speak of your awesome deeds, and I shall declare your, your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. It seems to be kind of this back and forth between the generations proclaiming this reality of God and David worshiping in light of that proclamation. Listen, I want to be, I want to be clear here because I know oftentimes we, we see things like this and there's a verse in Proverbs everybody wants to go to. I, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying if you teach diligently your children the things of God that, that, that they will necessarily grow up and be the godliest people on the planet and be saved. That's not what we're saying. The scriptures give us no reason to commend that. Life experience gives us no reason to commend that. But here's what I am saying and what the scripture is saying. If you don't tell them, they're not going to know. We have to be proclaimers to those who are coming up to be proclaimers of the reality of the truth of who God is and what he has done. Again, look at, look at what it's saying. That they're going to proclaim and meditate on the wondrous works and, and proclaim his mighty acts. We who are his people should be proclaimers, yes, of his mighty acts that we see recorded in Scripture. Yes, we have to proclaim these things. Let us also proclaim to the next generation the mighty acts of God in our own lives. 
Let us proclaim to the next generation the reality of what God has done for us, of how he has saved us, from what he has saved us, of his goodness to provide when he has provided, of his goodness to protect and defend when he has protected and defended. Let us be proclaimers of these things to the next generation. And again, in this, this section of Scripture, we see an obligation to all of us. But as we look through it, I would argue specifically, parents, we have an obligation to our children. We have an obligation to be proclaimers to our children the greatness of our God. To teach them the realities of who he is. To teach him his mighty works. To teach him the mighty work he has done for his people in Christ. To teach him and, and proclaim to them the things he has done in our own lives. Grandparents. There's an obligation as believing grandparents to be disciples of your grandchildren. That we should seek to, to tell them what God did to us in our generation or your generation. We would be proclaimers of these things. And as a church as a whole, there's some who, who will come through the church who, who will, will not be parents or either will be children who don't have parents who are believers who can teach them. We need as a church to be committed to raising up the next generation to know and believe and trust in the things of who God is. That's why we do what we do on CDM and YDM. That's why we're committed to having a, our children involved in the service on Sunday morning. That's why we're committed to what we do on Wednesday nights. Because we want them to know and to see and to believe the reality of who God is and what it is to worship Him. We have an obligation to do these things. As parents, as grandparents, and as a church, we are to be those who proclaim the greatness of our God to the upcoming generation. And not just within the walls of this church, but to the world. That they would know and see the greatness of the God that we serve. So David, in, in verses 1 through 7, has looked at this worshipful aspect, this proclamation, both, both personally and generationally, of this proclamation of the greatness of God and the necessity to worship Him, and the necessity to, to proclaim that worship to the upcoming generation. And then in the rest of the psalm, he proclaims this greatness of, of God. He's giving off reasons and, and ways in which we are to praise him and things for which we are to praise and exalt him. And we're just going to kind of walk through those as he walks through them. Look at verse 8. Yahweh is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Again, David has proclaimed the need to worship. Now he's given the reasons for worship. And the first point he makes is the gracious, merciful, covenant love of God. The Lord is gracious, compassionate, merciful, slow to anger. As I looked at that, and um, there's a commentary about Plumer, um, an old Puritan guy. And that word can be translated long to anger, he says, because it is commonly long before God becomes so angry to cut men down. We have a God who is patient and long-suffering. God who is gracious and merciful. 
Again, for some of us, that should draw back a, a recollection of Exodus 34. When Moses asked God to show him his glory. If you're familiar with the setting, God says, you can't, you can't see that and live. But I'll put my hand before you and I will pass before you and I will proclaim my name to you. So he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. He covers him so that he cannot see the fullness of his glory. And he walks by and he proclaims his name. And what does he say? Yahweh, Yahweh, a God gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This isn't just what he does. It's the very nature of who he is. Oftentimes when we speak of someone and we say, well, so-and-so is a, a, a compassionate person or so-and-so is a nice person. So-and-so is a whatever. Generally what we're speaking of is they do those things. Right? I don't think we're saying by the inherent nature of the entirety of who they are, they are those things. I would hope not because if you follow any of them around, they're going to show you times where they're not compassionate and they're not giving and they're not kind. But when the Bible speaks of God is something, it's not saying God does these things. Yes, he does, but he does them because it's by the very nature of who he is. Again, when God proclaimed his name to Moses, that's what he said. This is who I am. Not merely things that I do. This is who I am. Compassionate. Merciful. And abounding in steadfast love. Again, that word there being hesed, pointing to a covenant love for his people. This is who the Lord is. And he goes on to say, He is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. I'd argue in verse 8 is pointing to his people, speaking of the steadfast covenant love for his people. And in verse 8 is pointing to his general common mercy over all people. And again, if you're sitting here and be like, well, how do, what evidence do I have that God is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love? We're all still here. Because if he was not, I would not be. And neither with you. He's given us life today. And in that, he has been long-suffering and patient. He's been gracious and good. And his mercy is over all that he has made. So in verses 8 and 9, we see this gracious, merciful goodness of, of God. And in verses 10 through 13, we see the reign and dominion and kingdom of God that, that should cause us to praise. Look at, look at verse 10. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Yahweh, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So we're to praise God because he's gracious and merciful and compassionate and we're to praise God because he is the king whose kingdom has no end. The old hymn, something about that name, is a refrain in there, kings and kingdoms will all pass away. We even saw it in Psalm 46 when Pastor Adam taught through that of this idea of the nations raging, the kingdoms totter. 
speaks, the Lord speaks and the earth melts. We worship God and we should worship God and we should proclaim to the next generation this truth about God that they are to worship is this truth. He is the king and he will never be dethroned. He has always been and he is now and he always will be the ruler of all things. Yes, he appoints worldly leaders. We see throughout the scriptures, if they're in a place of position and power and authority, it's because the king put them there. And he will take them out. But we're to worship God, we're to see God, we're to rest in the reality of the truth of God every day that he is the king over all that happens and we don't have to wake up or go to bed tonight and wonder, man, I wonder if, he's gonna, I wonder if tomorrow he's still gonna be in charge of this thing. We have it every four years in our country. The dreaded night in November. And we'll go to bed and some of us will go to bed not really concerned and turned it off about before it came on. And we'll just go to bed and we'll wake up the next day and we'll see what happened. But there's still the thought in our mind of, all right, who's going who's gonna to be... When I wake up tomorrow, who's going to be the one that's been put in place? And every four years, we go through the same rigmarole. And it's the same thing over and over again. And I'm not, I'm not knocking that process. Don't misunderstand my nonchalantness with it. But what I am saying is, every four years, even, even in this country, we get to sit in turmoil and anxiety, some of us, and say, who's going to, who's going to be the guy steering the ship? As those who trust in God, we don't have to wonder that. I get to go to bed tonight and wake up tomorrow and know that the same king sits on the throne and I get to go to bed the next day and wake up the next day and know the same thing. There is no end to his kingdom. And the king will rule. We can choose to try to fight against his his kingship, we can try to establish our own kingdom, but Psalm 2 points out the futility of that. The nations can rage and the people can plot in vain. He just sits in the heavens and he laughs because he knows his kingdom will endure forever and theirs will not. He knows he has established them and he can take them away. We're to worship God because he is the king whose throne and rule and reign has no end. But look at verse 14. We're to worship God because of his care and provision. Yahweh upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. The psalmist points to this reality that the Lord is the one who sustains all. It is the Lord's goodness who raises up the downcast. It is the Lord's goodness who upholds those who are falling. And it's the Lord's goodness who provides for us as we need them. And I think both of these voices, verses are pointing to a, a common good of God to all of his creation. We see it in Matthew where Jesus says he makes it rain on the just and the unjust. God in his mercy and grace and patience to all of his 
creation gives sustaining and gives provision as it's needed. Even look at the goodness and how he, he does it. Look at verse 15. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. Not even just gives it to them. He gives it to them in the right season at the right time. Now, even as I was thinking through this, and listen, I grew up farming. I know how seasons of crops work. I also know this. We weren't dependent upon that season of corn to eat for the rest of the, the year, right? So we're, we're not in a, in a setting where it's, we're kind of eating food as it comes harvested in. We harvest it daily when we go to the grocery store or to the drive-thru. We don't think about it as much that way. But I think we should. Think of the way the Lord has given food, especially in this, this time, but he's given it even now. Yeah, we have advanced technology, but there's still cyclical seasons of things. We know there's winter fruit, and, or well, not fruit, but winter vegetables and summer vegetables and fall vegetables. He's laid them out periodically. Why? Because if he gave us the whole thing in June, we wouldn't be able to get it in. It'd be bad by the time we got to the end. Even in his goodness of not just giving it, but how he's given it. The Lord has been gracious to provide and give in due season. Some of us are here, and, and, and again, I think we're all guilty of it at times. But we just don't even pay attention to it. We'll bow our heads and we'll give thanks, but do we honestly sit and think about the reality? The food I had this morning and the food I'll have at lunch and the food I'll have this evening, He gave me. He and His goodness opened his hand and satisfied the desires of every living thing. He is a good and generous and providing God. He is good to all. But the psalmist also speaks of a particular care for his saints. Look at verse 17. Yahweh is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Yahweh is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. Here, this, David speaks of the goodness of God, particularly towards his people. That he is near to those who call on him and those who call on him in truth. How do we call upon him in truth? We call upon him in Christ. We come to him through Christ Jesus, for that is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to come to the Father. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, we have a reason to praise and a reason to daily exalt him and something to proclaim to the next generation. And it's this reality. For those who are in Christ, God is near to us. When we call on him, he is not far away. He's not left us. He's not forsaken us. God is near to those who call on him and those who call on him in truth For those who are not in Christ today, hear that. Go to him in Christ and he will not be far away. Come to him. Rest upon him. Trust in him for he is near to those who call on him. And then goes on further in verse 19. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him and he hears their cry and he saves them. 
So he's near to those who call on him and he saves them. I think there's a salvific aspect here pointing soteriologically, pointing to the idea of, of being saved in Christ Jesus to him, being saved salvifically. That we point and we he, he hears the cries of those who cry out to him in truth in Christ Jesus and he saves them. He is a gracious and good God to save his people. He is a gracious and good God to be near his people. He is a gracious and good God to save all of those who would come to him in truth through Christ, seeking forgiveness and reconciliation and to be saved. He's to be praised because he is that good and gracious king. And look at verse 20. The Lord Yahweh preserves all who love him. He hears them, he's near to them, he saves them, and he keeps them. Dear Saint, if the psalmist had written nothing else in this psalm, except verses 1 through 7, and then said, the Lord is gracious and merciful, and he, he's near to those who call on him in truth, and he saves them, and he preserves them. Would we not have reason every day to praise him? Would we not have reason every day to walk up and wake up and say, the king of the universe has saved me. He is near to me. He has made me his own and he will keep me today. He will preserve me today. Though something of this world take my life, he will not lose me. He will keep me. But then look at the end of verse 20. The Lord preserves all who love him. But all the wicked he will destroy. The Lord is to be worshipped and praised for his justice as well as his mercy. And I, I want us to look at that verse in the context of everything else that's been said. The Lord satisfies and opens his hand and provides food and care for all of his creation. The Lord's mercy is over all that he has made and he's patient and long-suffering. But there is a day when he will judge the wicked and destroy them. Go to Exodus 34. Earlier I referenced it. I want you to flip there with me now if you will. I want us to look back at that passage we noted earlier about the name of God when he was proclaiming it to Moses, proclaiming of his grace and mercy. Go to Exodus 34, verse 6. And Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. All of these things are true of God. All of these things are, again, not just what he does, but who he is. God proclaims of himself as the psalmist proclaims of him here. He is the Lord, gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
but he will by no means clear the guilty. He preserves those who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. Dear friend, if you're here today and you've been presuming upon the goodness and and mercy of God, and you've been walking through life thinking, well, I've got what I need, I'm healthy, We've, we've got all that we need, I'm sustained, clearly God's okay with me because he's not struck me down yet and I'm not destitute, despised and rejected. I would point you to Romans 2. It is the kindness of the Lord that's meant to lead you to repentance. Do not presume upon his long suffering today and not turn to him in Christ. And we can look at these two truths and we can say, how is that true? How can the Lord say of himself and how can the psalmist say of him that he is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love who forgives transgression and iniquity and sin and then right behind that say, who will by no means clear the guilty? Because if if we put two and two together, if you forgive iniquity, transgression and sin, you are doing that to guilty people. Fair enough? So how can he say I'm gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and sin, and I preserve those who love me, and I'm mercies over all, and yet I will not clear the guilty and I will destroy the wicked. How can he say both of these things at the same time and be just in doing so? Christ shows us how he can be both. Because those who have received the steadfast love of God and his grace and mercy and forgiveness of transgression, iniquity, and sin, know that it's not just God winked an eye at us and and gave us a skittle and sent us back outside to play. He didn't clear us in that regard. Rather, he settles the sin and transgression and guilt and iniquity that is forgiven. And how does he do so? Because for those who are in Christ Jesus, he bore our sin. Suffering death upon a cross, bearing the wrath of God and punishment and justice that was due us that God can cleanse and forgive because Christ has settled that account. Christ has paid and offered atonement or offered a sacrifice that satisfied his wrath, that paid the penalty that was due his people. If you're here today and you're not in Christ, I I would plead with you today to see the goodness of who God is and see the justice of who God is together. To see that up until this point in your life, he has been patient and long-suffering with you. He's been merciful to you. He's provided He's given you breath and life. But see the reality that the day is coming when you will stand before him. And don't presume that because he has given you life that all is okay. Know that for those who are not in Christ, when that day comes, he will not clear the guilty and the wicked he will destroy but he is a God who is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love, who saves those who cry out to him in truth. Christ is the truth through which we cry out to him.
Would you look to Christ? Would you trust upon Christ? Would you believe upon him? And for those of us who are in Christ, may verse 21 be our proclamation. My mouth will speak the praise of Yahweh. And let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. We who are his people, who are in Christ, who know the Lord, gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. May we daily wake up and remind ourselves of these truths and worship and proclaim and praise him in our words, in our work, the way we relate to people. May it be a proclamation of who he is. And may we, in a desire that all flesh would bless his holy name, go and commend the greatness of God and his kingdom and of his work in Christ to those who do not know. That they would taste and see, as Psalm 34 tells us, that the Lord is good. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we do um, feebly and weakly proclaim that you are great and greatly to be praised. Father, would, would you instill in us a longing and a yearning for your word that we would know more the depths of who you are, the depths of your greatness that is unsearchable. That you would grow in us a praise and an exaltation of who you are. Father, today would you open the eyes of those who do not see. That they may know your greatness and your justice. And your mercy and grace in Christ. It's through him that we pray these things. Amen.